Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And you can also check out my blog at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. Okay, today is Friday, September 10th, 2021. And in the last episode, we talked about the NCAA's reply document and went through that in some detail. And that was submitted in this infractions and enforcement process on February 7th of 2020. Just a week later, on February 14th, 2020, after the NC State case has been through the entire formal process in the old Committee on Infractions system under the old rules, and the only thing left to happen is the actual hearing before the Committee on Infractions. Carol Cartwright, who has been assigned by the NCAA to oversee and manage all of the infractions and enforcement cases that arise from the basketball-related scandal and the criminal prosecutions in the Southern District of New York, refers the entire case to the new independent accountability resolution process. And this is really just a stunning event in this timeline. And I've discussed in prior episodes that at any point since August of 2019, this case or any other case arising from the criminal prosecutions in New York could have been sent to this independent accountability resolution process, which was specifically set up for these very cases. And there's no dispute about that. But Carol Cartwright, in her judgment, wanted to keep these cases in the old system and really didn't offer any explanation as to why they hadn't been moved over. So now, after this process is concluded in the old bad system, now all of a sudden, Carol Cartwright says, wait a minute, this needs to be in the independent resolution process. It's really breathtaking that this occurred under these circumstances. Procedurally, in order to make that referral possible, Cartwright went through the independent referral committee. It's a committee set up specifically under the new legislation recommended by the Commission on College Basketball to set up a truly independent resolution process that was free from all of the NCAA conflicts of interest built into the NCAA National Office Enforcement Staff and then the NCAA Insider Committee on Infractions people. So, under this process, there are a series of standards that you lay out to determine whether or not a case is appropriate for referral. So Cartwright puts together this referral petition, and the cover page of it is titled The Petition to Request Referral of Case to the Independent Accountability Resolution Structure by the Chair Designee of the NCAA Division I Committee on Infractions. And in the middle of the cover page of this document, in massive, bold letters, is the word confidential. So it, this document, I believe, was drafted with a view towards keeping it out of the public eye and it made it into the public domain 
but it is not easily accessible. And I did my research and found it on a website that really is designed as a depot for documents like this that have been obtained through public records requests. And then they're published online, particularly when the media doesn't really cover the, the issues that are the subject of these documents. And that was true here. There was very little coverage about the appropriateness of this referral. But the reason I mention that is that I, it's my belief that when Carol Cartwright wrote this letter, I don't think she thought this was going to be in the public domain and would be available for people like me to look at and scrutinize. And scrutinize I will in uh, just a while. But I'm going to call an audible here. I'm going to talk about this memo in detail, but I really think it's important to put into context some of the bigger picture issues in terms of who is really influencing the future of college sports and how tight and connected that community is, even among and between people and institutions that on their face have some disagreement about college sports. And I say that because Carol Cartwright signed this letter in her capacity as President Emerita of both Bowling Green University and Kent State Universities, and in her capacity as the chair designee of the NCAA Division I Committee on Infractions. Cartwright has a very impressive resume, and she was a university president from 1991 to 2006. But she includes some credentials, which is interesting. She could have just signed it as the chair designee, but she wanted people to understand that she was a university president. And I think that there's a message in that as well. But here's some things that she's done in her impressive career that are not included under her name. And one is that she was on the board of directors of the American Council on Education. And that's important because that organization has been influential over the years, particularly in the late 1990s, in trying to set minimum academic standards. So the whole Proposition 48 and Proposition 42 debate, which played out in the 80s and 90s and was really a mess. And I talk about that in some detail in a blog post that I wrote after legendary Georgetown basketball coach John Thompson passed away last year. And he was really important in that debate. And his view was that these requirements were racially discriminatory. I'll link to that blog post because I think it's worth a look. And I talk about the history of Proposition 48 and 42. And then she was also on the board of directors of the American Association of Colleges and Universities, a similarly minded institution and the views of these organizations historically, and I think this is true today, in their relationship to big-time college sports is one of fundamental hostility. And I talked quite a, a bit about that in my first five episodes in this podcast. But Cartwright went on to become a leader in NCAA governance. She was on the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, its most important body. She was also on the NCAA Executive Committee, which is a small group of leaders that really are at the top of the pyramid in terms of policymaking and decision-making and public positioning for the NCAA. So in those capacities, she is acting as a representative for NCAA interests. She is an NCAA insider at the highest level. And then, and this may be the, her most important affiliation for the purposes of her work with the Committee on Infractions, 
since August of 2000, Carol Cartwright has been a member of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. And from 2017 up until the end of 2020, throughout this entire period that involves these basketball-related scandals, she was a co-chair of the Knight Commission. And it is my belief that her service on the Knight Commission, and in particular, her leadership role in the Knight Commission during this crucial phase of 2017 to the end of 2020, created a disqualifying conflict of interest. And I'm going to talk in more detail about the Knight Commission in this episode. And I talked about it quite a bit in episode number four at the very beginning, and it was titled Presidents in Charge. And I traced the history of the whole concept of presidential control and accountability for inter intercollegiate athletics and the conduct of intercollegiate athletics and how that has been a, a failed initiative. And that thinking, that theory really goes back to the Carnegie Foundation and the 1929 Carnegie Report and the thinking of its principal authors and influencers, Henry Pritchett, who wrote a consequential preface to that report, then Abraham Flexner, who wasn't really involved in the report, but some of his biases are reflected in Pritchett's work. And then to a lesser extent, Howard Savage, who was actually the author of the report, but they were all like-minded and they had a very elitist view of the role of the university in American society and American culture. And that view was brought forward by the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics in the late 80s and early 90s and really made it into the thinking on leadership in college sports. In the 1991 report, Keeping Faith with the Student Athlete, which was really the Knight Commission's seminal work. And again, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a second. But I was initially going to go through this document just in the context of the sequence of events in this infractions and enforcement process involving NC State. But I think it's important to do uh, a little bit of, of background here to talk about the Knight Commission and why Carol Cartwright's involvement there was a problem. The Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics is an outside independent advocacy group. It has no formal authority in college sports, and it was created in 1989 for the purpose of trying to preserve the integrity of the academy. That was its fundamental charge. When the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics was founded in 1989, it wasn't looking at protecting the rights of athletes. It wasn't concerned primarily with the rights of athletes. It wasn't concerned primarily with any of the individual interests in the big time college sports marketplace. The Knight Commission's fundamental orientation was to protect the institutional interests of universities who were participating in the big time college sports sweepstakes. And the Knight Commission believed that the institutional interests in higher education were under existential assault and threat because of the irrational relationship between higher education and big time college sports, which means big time football and big time men's basketball. And just like Henry Pritchett and Abraham Flexner and Howard Savage in the 1920s, the leadership in the Knight Commission was concerned with academic integrity at the institutional level. And the fundamental premise upon which the commission was built and all of its work has 
swirled around is that university presidents and chancellors are responsible for the control and conduct of intercollegiate athletics. The buck stops with them. And again, I talked about this in in episode four, but that theory dates back to the Carnegie Report. It was explicitly brought forward by the Knight Commission in its 1991 report. And it is still a centerpiece of the commission's work, even though it has proven to be a complete failure. And honestly, I think the Knight Commission itself would have a difficult time arguing with that assessment. And I'll talk in a little bit here about why I believe the Knight Commission has essentially conceded that its presidential control model has failed and needs to be replaced. But as it became apparent over the last really 20 years that the presidential control model really wasn't working, the Knight Commission started to expand its thinking and it was looking at issues that were related to institutional academic integrity and the integrity of higher education, but weren't necessarily focused on this principle of presidential control. And one of the things that the Knight Commission has been very active in promoting and advocating, and they are an advocacy group, is the dirtiness of these shoe and apparel contracts. And one of the things that the Knight Commission has done, and I think this is a great thing. So in in pointing this out, I'm not saying the Knight Commission shouldn't have been focused on that or that Carol Cartwright shouldn't have been focused in that in her capacity as a member of the Knight Commission and a co-chair of the Knight Commission. That's great. That's wonderful work. And I agree with a lot of what they do. And particularly on this shoe and apparel contract issue, they have been asking for really 20 years now that these contracts be transparent and they are anything but, even at state universities, which have found clever ways to disguise the flow of that money, where it's going, who's benefiting from it, and what all the interconnections are within the institution and how that money flows. And we're talking about massive contracts now in the hundreds, over $100 million. UCLA's contract with Under Armour, I think, is worth $130 million. Louisville and Kansas, who are in this scandal, they're up around $100 million. NC State's at $40 million. This is big, big money. And the Knight Commission is absolutely on the right track in calling that out and asking for transparency. But built into that, Built into that advocacy is a bias against the very existence of that market and a bias against the people who operate in that market. And this basketball scandal was built around all of the claimed corruption in the grassroots basketball system and then the shoe company involvement and then how it flows upstream to the universities and then on to the NBA and professional basketball products. There is a built-in bias against that entire system and the people in that system, like the, the coaches who are benefiting from payments from those companies and the assistant coaches are in, in the talent acquisition market and then have relationships with shoe company employees at the grassroots level, all the things that we've talked about. And that is an entirely appropriate and well-founded bias, but it is a bias nonetheless. And having participated in public debates in a role, a quasi-public role, even though the Knight Foundation is private. It has credibility and it has a 30-year record and it's had some great ideas and it's had some really good people working on its behalf. But Carol Cartwright's role as the chair designee of the NCAA Division I Committee on Infractions requires her to come in with a truly objective 
viewpoint, a truly neutral viewpoint, because she is acting in many ways as the overseer of the entire judgment process. This is a process where the NCAA is forming judgments about the people who are subject to its jurisdiction. And in that process, there are serious consequences for the outcome of that case. Carol Cartwright knows that because she's been an NCAA insider at the highest levels. Carol Cartwright knows that she has taken public positions, advocacy positions that are inconsistent with a portrayal as a neutral arbiter of people who are participating in a business that she thinks is fundamentally corrupt. And the fact that she even considered accepting that assignment from the NCAA is really distressing. And when you read Carol Cartwright's referral memo, that February 14th, 2020 memo, her bias comes through. It is loud and clear. And I don't think it's a specific bias against NC State or Kansas or Louisville or Mark Gottfried or Orlando Early or Dennis Smith or any of the individuals in the system. It is a bias against the corruption in a component of the business model that she finds particularly distasteful, or at least the institution that she has advocated on behalf of has found distasteful. I think they're right. So I agree with that. But she cannot then take off her advocate's hat and then put on her neutral decision maker's hat in evaluating people who are operating in that very industry. You just can't do it. And on top of that obvious, and I believe, objective conflict, I think there are some other problems with Cartwright's involvement here. And, and this, I think, ties more directly to her service in the NCAA and this whole concept of presidential control and how that principle has been bastardized in NCAA governance in a way that now has the Knight Commission actually arguing against it from a policy standpoint. They don't come out and say this directly, but their whole purpose originally was to promote presidential leadership for the control and conduct of intercollegiate sports, to add some measure of accountability in this runaway train, at least as the Knight Commission saw it in the late 80s and early 90s. Today, they're saying that the corruption in the decision-making process in NCAA governance at the highest levels, the Board of Governors and the Division I Board of Directors, is so bad that we need to bring in people who are entirely external to the NCAA to try to mitigate the corruption that's occurring in the presidential leadership and control model. And that corruption in the governance model and the failure of presidential leadership and control has put the Knight Commission in a really awkward position because its entire existence is built around the concept of presidential control and responsibility for college sports. But they have tacitly admitted that it's a failure, but they can't say, look, the original purpose of this commission has just fallen apart and we just need to disband. We tried it, it didn't work, and now we're on about our way. And the other reason that they're stuck with that is that when you look at the work of the Knight foundation, the overarching foundation that funds the, the Knight Commission, it is premised on education. It is premised on freedom of inquiry. It's premised upon protecting democratic values in a free society. And so when you go to the webpage for the Knight Foundation, you get a sense of their purpose. And it says the Knight Foundation supports democracy in America by fostering informed, engaged, and equitable communities. The foundation invests in journalism, arts, and culture in community, research in areas of media and democracy, and in the success of cities and towns where John S. and James L. Knight once published newspapers, though their uh, foundation was 
the product of money made in the media industry. And they talk about their beliefs. They say, we believe in freedom of expression and in the values expressed in the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. We believe an informed citizenry is essential for representative democracy to function effectively. We believe in engaged, equitable, and inclusive communities. So those are beautiful principles and sorely needed right now. But the uh, entire philosophy of the foundation is built around education and the acquisition of knowledge, the retention of knowledge, the transmission of knowledge, and protecting the ability to do all of those things through principles of a free society and free speech and a free press. And I think it's important to remember that the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics operates under that umbrella and within those broader values. And I believe that the early work of the Knight Commission was informed by those broad values. And at a theoretical level, it made sense. It made perfect sense. And I believe that's one of the reasons that there was some sense in the community of people who thought that big-time college sports was a existential threat to academic integrity and the integrity of higher education. But there was some optimism there that this presidential control model was going to really be the magic bullet. And it turned out not to be. And I think that because of the philosophy of the foundation, because of the belief systems of the people who were involved early on, the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics is operating in a really interesting and I believe challenging space where they have to speak the rhetoric of reform. But when they talk about implementing reform items, they are really bumping back into the old failed value system that dates back to the early 20th century and this belief that there is this pristine academic environment that we can reach back to and this pristine college sports environment, amateurism-based environment that we can reach back to. And if we could only do that, then everything would be okay. And I've said before, and I believe that some of the advocates in the Austin case, the friends of the court, particularly the historians and the sports historians who analyzed amateurism, said that was just a false belief from the beginning. And I would add to that, there was not only a false belief about the purity of amateurism and whether it ever existed, and there's ample evidence that it didn't. But I think the same is true for this academic ideal that came out of thinking like that of the Carnegie Report, that there was some perfect American intellectual environment that existed at some point and that we can make changes that will take us back to that. I don't know if that ever existed because the monolith that these elitists were relying on, and I'm not saying that in a pejorative way, you know, elitism has, has its place, <laughs> but the elitists in the Carnegie Foundation and, and the authors and the inspiration for the uh, Carnegie Report, they had a belief that was rooted in European thinking and Oxford and Cambridge and Flexner was in Germany for a long time. A lot of his thinking on higher education or education more, more broadly, really came out of his experience in England and Germany. And that really didn't transition well to the United States and the purposes to which higher education has been put and is needed to be put in America. And then the same is true with importing this principle of amateurism. It simply didn't have a chance in America, in a country that was built on values of egalitarianism and equality of opportunity and the elitism that and the elite in the elitist culture that amateurism came from just made it really dead on arrival and, and i've talked a, a bit about that and ronald smith's 1988 book sports and freedom really discusses that in a wonderful way 
And he did a chapter titled Amateurism, an Untenable Concept in America. And that says it all, and that's a great reader. But the Knight Commission really is kind of stuck between two worlds. One is this, what I believe is a fantasy world of pristine academic values and the possibility of pristine relationship between big-time college sports and, and big-time universities. And then on the other hand, the realities of what's happening in the 21st century, and most particularly what has happened in the last year. And I think the Knight Commission has been wrestling with that. When you look at their website and you look at what they've done in 2021, and I, they have good leadership. I, I like a lot of what they're saying, but the things that they're saying on the progressive side, on the we need to move into the 21st century side of their thinking and their recommendations, again, it is in direct collision with some of the fundamental values upon which the commission was originally formed. And those, those tensions have played out in college sports really since its inception, but they have intensified in the 21st century for all the reasons that I've talked about in my discussion about the perfect storm and why this period between 2019 and, and the present will be viewed in hindsight as one of the most consequential periods in the history of college sports. Because for the first time ever, we have really taken a clear eye to some of the underlying philosophies of intercollegiate athletics. And the most important one there is the concept of amateurism. And it is a fraud. It has been a fraud from the very beginning in the United States of America. And the universities have been managing the professional amateur dilemma by presenting to the outside world a false facade of integrity that doesn't exist and never existed. And Carol Cartwright is the personification of that hypocrisy in my judgment. And in her work with the Committee on Infractions in these basketball-related cases, and in particular, this referral memo, that hypocrisy is loud and clear. And it is really frustrating to read. And remember, this was written 18 months before the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously delivered a substantial body blow to amateurism. And built into that hypocrisy is a belief that these university leaders, these presidents and chancellors and the people who are so concerned with academic integrity. I'll just note this too. That discussion of academic integrity is increasingly rare. The discussion is no longer about academic integrity or the integrity of higher education. It's about the integrity of college sports and the way that's played out in 2020 and 2021, particularly in the Senate, is the integrity of college sports means the preservation of the principle of amateurism, the student athlete, and the collegiate model. And that is not a principled position. And the United States Supreme Court has essentially said that. And the Knight Commission, because of the principles of the foundation under which it operates, is still speaking that language because they have to, you know, and that language is increasingly difficult to defend because of the failure of presidential leadership and control and the failure of these attempts to try to rein in commercialization and professionalization in college sports. And that has occurred in large part at the insistence of the very college presidents that the Knight Commission in 1991 claimed should be put in charge to eliminate the corrosive effect of money in big-time college sports. And the presidents have said, to heck with reform, we're taking the money. And that goes back 
to Sonny Vaccaro's comments to the Knight Commission, this very commission in 2001, where he said to them, and he re-ruffled a lot of feathers, but the fact that he ruffled feathers is part of the problem because these people are living in a world of denial. But Sonny Vaccaro said, I'm going to offer you the money and you're going to take it. And you can preen and you can be all moral and you can try to condemn me with your words of derision. But the fact of the matter is, I'm coming to you. I'm going to buy your university. I'm going to buy your coach. I'm going to buy your integrity. And you're going to be a willing participant in that transaction. You're selling it to me. And I'm going to cut you a check. You're going to take it. You're going to cash it. And you're going to come back for more. And that's exactly what has happened. And I think that the Carol Cartwrights of the world, who still, I believe, have this fantasy-based belief of, in the righteousness of their position, they are fighting a battle that's already been lost. And there's a, an element of frustration in that, I think. And that frustration comes out, in my judgment, in the tone of this referral letter. And I believe that Cartwright, and to a lesser extent, the, the Knight Commission, because I think they're bound to this, whether they want to be or not, they're living in what I call the as-if dilemma. And that dilemma is one where the, the people in the academy, this is really a dynamic that's unique to those inside of higher education and decision makers in higher education and critics of big time sports. And this dates back for decades. The criticism that came out and, and then gave life to the presidential control in our collegiate athletics was premised upon some assumptions that really couldn't be proven up. So people who think that way, and I have personal experience with that at the institutions that I've been affiliated with. And you have people who think that at, at a fundamental level, that universities have no business being in the business of big-time college sports. They'll pay some minimal lip service to that because they know that if coming out and saying that is not a good position in the community. But that's what they really believe. And that belief system is far more widespread than people understand in the academic community. And they have such disdain for what they perceive to be the corruption and the corrupting influences of big-time college sports that they behave in some ways as if they don't exist. So they know that the university has made the decision to participate in the big-time college sports sweepstakes. And they're building a lot of the university life around big-time college sports, and they're using it for their institutional purposes. But at the same time, these people think that they shouldn't exist. So in the way that they look at the interests of the people who are actually at ground zero of that business, they view them as really having no value because they shouldn't be there in the first place. You don't really have to wrestle with the obvious inequities in the system and the social injustice built into the business model and in, in the impact, the disproportionate impact on African-American men. Even at universities that prize diversity and proclaim their commitment to social and racial justice, these people who have the as-if view of the world, they have absolutely no use for revenue-producing athletes. And all of a sudden, these guys cease to be black. They're just, they're invisible in many ways, and they don't exist. And that is an injustice that I think has fueled some of the exploitation that is now a fundamental component of the business model. And one of the reasons that the exploitation model is now so deeply rooted in big-time college sports is that the as-if crowd, who should be first and foremost among the university community members who stand up for the rights of these athletes, particularly the African-American athletes, 
They simply don't believe that exploitation exists or even could be possible. And the thinking is, how in the world can these athletes be exploited when they have no business being here? And that then translates into this really bizarre convergence of interests between the haters and the faculty community. The haters of big-time college sports. And then the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries like the athletics departments and coaches and the NCAA and the conferences and the conference commissioners all using a delegitimization model for much different purposes, but it all winds up in the same place. And that is that these athletes have it so doggone good that they need to just sit down and shut up. The as if crowd is saying that because they don't believe these kids have any business being at their university. The in-system stakeholder beneficiaries on the athletic side are saying that because they want to minimize the true value of these athletes to the overall business enterprise. And you hear both of those stakeholders, both of those communities, the athletics communities and then the faculty communities who are coming at this from a fundamentally different perspective, landing in the same place on this. And that is that these athletes get all of these amazing benefits. Look at all the things that they get. And they're treated like royalty and they're celebrities and everybody caters to, to their every need. And that makes sense only if you refuse to look at the reality of their relationship to the university and to the athletics department and to the business model. And you can indulge the luxury of painting with a broad brush about things that you know very little about. That's true for the, uh, the faculty. On the athletic side, they are simply trying to prevent people from looking at the business model the way that a unanimous Supreme Court looked at it just in June of this year. And that is that it is fundamentally exploitative. And you had justices from Elena Kagan to Brett Kavanaugh to Samuel Alito all saying the same thing because that is the truth. And that is a truth they arrived at after looking at evidence that had been accumulated really over a decade in litigation. And you can't ignore it. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. But this whole as-if view of the world is an academic conceit that has a real negative impact on some of the most vulnerable members, not just in our society, but in the university community. And when academicians, particularly university presidents who are supposed to be in charge of this whole shooting match, when they are in a crossover position between the faculty world and the athletics world, and they refuse to acknowledge the realities that these athletes live in, the real world that these athletes live in, and put aside all the propaganda. That is a dangerous dynamic. And I believe that even though they were well-intentioned, the people in the as-if crowd who came from this faculty way of thinking that really was hostile to big-time college sports, and then they're jumping over into the policy side, and they're going to offer their opinions, and they're going to get involved in the governance of big-time college sports. When they make that transition, they simply aren't living in a world that's based in reality. And I think that was clearly the case among some of the people that were promoting the views of the Knight Commission and the 1991 report in this model of presidential leadership and control. And they, they haven't assumed that responsibility. And just in the last two years, Americans are starting to wake up to that. And it took a nine to zero Supreme Court decision to make that hypocrisy 
one that we have to look at or at least acknowledge. And when you go back and you look at the silence from certain portions of the commentariat in big time college sports after the Austin decision, after this unanimous Supreme Court decision, there, there were a lot of people who have been very outspoken uh, about their conceptualization of amateurism and how important it is and the purity of academic integrity and all that. They fell silent. They fell silent. And the as if people were chief among them. The way I see this as if dilemma, and I'm going to do a, an entirely separate episode on this. When I talk about the myths underlying big time college sports, particularly as they relate to revenue producing athletes and the way that they've been thrown under the bus by their own academic communities in many ways. But the problem with the as if view of the world is that it gives people living in it the ability to not acknowledge the flaws in their value system or the world as it actually exists for revenue producing athletes and not acknowledging the very existence of that world because you think it is illegitimate and has no proper role, has the effect of delegitimizing black revenue producing athletes. And at the same time, you're imposing a white value system on those athletes who come from circumstances by and large that are completely outside of the climate and culture of the universities who they play for, labor for, and make a bunch of money for. And that is a problem. As if problem is something that nobody wants to talk about because it does not speak well to many, many in the academic community at universities who are bringing in all the benefits of the big time college sports sweepstakes, but not accepting the real consequences of that business model and its disproportionate impact on the most vulnerable subset of Americans, young black men. At the individual level, People like Carol Cartwright, who I believe live in the as-if world, really shouldn't be in the position of making consequential decisions in a market that they find so distasteful and inconsistent with the values of higher education. And on the Knight Commission side in 2020, 2021, I think they are in this really difficult position because they do have leadership that I believe is equipped to wrestle with the tough issues. And they've recently announced some initiatives relating to racial equality that makes some sense and to the change in NCAA governance that makes sense. The problem is that all of those initiatives fly in the face of the fundamental values upon which that commission was premised. And what I see in the commission, and you see this duality, that duality played out in the commission on college basketball, because I think Condoleezza Rice was like a ping pong ball in a wind tunnel because she sees the absurdity of the system. She's trying to make recommendations within the limitations of that system. And you're back to some of these profound, irreconcilable tensions, like saying a name, image, and likeness. Yes, you can have name, image, and likeness opportunities, and we will ease the anti-competitive restrictions on name, image, and likeness, but only within certain guardrails, only within principles like the collegiate model that make the provision of name, image, and likeness benefits impossible by definition, impossible. And in 2021, the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics is engaging in that same kind of duality. They have that same kind of problem. And the, there's a massive gulf between their rhetoric. And then when you look at the actual policy proposals, they don't really match up. They, they can't match up because they are the values are fundamentally inconsistent with the rhetoric. And that's been a problem in, in big time college sports, really for 
almost 70 years. I'll just take one example because it's one that's timely and it's one that the Knight Commission still relies upon. They have had a position on name, image, and likeness for a while. And actually, they have been talking about this longer than the NCAA has been talking about it, honestly, at least. And they've had some thinking that on its face looks progressive, but it only looks progressive when weighed against the lowest of bars, and that is the NCAA's absolute prohibition and totalitarian defense of compensation limits that related to name, image, and likeness. So when you look at the Knight Commission's work on name, image, and likeness, and they promote that as we're ahead of the curve here. Look at what we did. Our plan is great. But when you actually look at the principles that guided their name, image, and likeness proposal, and these come from April of 2020, and this is just two weeks before the NCAA Federal and State Legislation Working Group issues its final report on April 17th of 2020, (laughs) which turned out to be an absolute fraud on the nil benefit side. But remember that document also gave us a peek inside the NCAA strategy to obtain the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation because they were advocating an antitrust exemption, preemption of state laws relating to nil, but actually what they wanted was broader than that. And then a provision that uh, athletes couldn't be employees. (laughs) But, you know, the Knight Commission puts out its recommendation before that. And I believe there has been communication. There always is communication. And I said in a prior episode that the Knight Commission and the NCAA have a symbiotic relationship. And there's no question about that. But I want to talk about this nil proposal and then make a a broader observation about how these institutions look at their work and how they have actually operated within principles that limit the rights they claim to be furthering. So while there were some components of the Knight Commission nil policy that seemed a little bit outside the box from, at least from the NCAA's view of the world. They talked about group licensing rights. They also talked about having an oversight committee or commission that was, at least the way they describe it, intended to be outside of uh, NCAA interference, but it was very broadly worded. But the most important thing to, to talk about here is that they bought into the most essential, quote unquote, guardrails for nil rights. And that use of the word guardrails, that came from the NCAA's working group. They defined the narrative from the very beginning when that working group was formed in May of 2019. And they got ahead of the game in defining the terms of the debate, defining the vocabulary that was going to be used and defining the limitations. And the chief limitations were that all of these transactions had to be with third parties. They couldn't be with the university because that would be pay for play. And that kind of pay for play would turn the athletes into employees. So you have amateurism and you have the student athlete being protected at the very outset. And then under this section titled guardrails for nil rights, the Knight Commission says rules must be put in place to avoid any pay-for-play, impermissible benefits, and improper recruiting or retention arrangements. Then they talk about some additional restrictions. And then the last section is called national uniformity. And they say nil rules must be uniform and enforceable across all states. That is an explicit argument for preemption. I guess it could be a reference to some kind of uniform law like the Uniform Law Commission was recommending, but I don't think that's what they mean here. I think they mean preemption. So when you look at this document, which is presented as a counterweight to the NCAA's provision. It is in its most essential functions, very similar to what the NCAA does. And it promotes three of the most important things that the NCAA is trying to get from Congress. One, they want an absolute prohibition on athletes getting money from the universities. They want to protect the concept of the student athlete, and they want 
preemption of state laws that interfere with the NCAA's ability to do that. And the Knight Commission has been a proponent of a quote-unquote limited antitrust exemption for the NCAA. And in press conferences from 2017, after the basketball scandal was on the table and the charges were announced, Carol Cartwright and Arnie Duncan, who's now one of the chairs of the commission, and I like Duncan and he, he has some good stuff to say, but they, while criticizing the NCAA, they're arguing for an antitrust exemption for the NCAA and subpoena power for the NCAA. So, I mean, th those are just extraordinary powers that the NCAA has no business getting. And the, and the truth of the matter is, and the Knight Commission doesn't really acknowledge this outright. They talk around this, but they don't come out and say that the only meaningful change that has come in big time college sports that has furthered the rights of the athletes or changed the structure of the way that big-time college sports operates is through external regulatory forces, the very external regulatory forces like federal courts, Congress, state legislatures, or outside advocacy groups that the NCAA has sought to neutralize and eliminate from the table so that the NCAA can do whatever the hell it wants to. And the Knight Commission is really not that far removed from the NCAA's view of the world. They are nibbling around the edges. And that brings me to a, a concept here that I've talked about before. And this is so important. And I've tried to convey this point in my writing and my speaking on the Commission on College Basketball. When the Commission on College Basketball issued its report, I wrote a post titled the, the Commission on College Basketball, A New Collegiate Model. And I, I put a couple of quotes at the beginning of that article that are really important important, I think, in analyzing the lack of change, the lack of meaningful change in big-time college sports from within. The people who are responsible for managing and governing big-time college sports have failed miserably at self-governance because they have instead engaged in self-dealing for their own personal benefit. And they have promoted narratives that reinforce their authority under the illusion that they care about change, that they are invested in change, and that they have the interests of the people who are the most affected in this industry at heart. And they do not. But the first quote is from Noam Chomsky. And he says, the smart way to preserve a corrupt status quo is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum even encourage the more critical and dissident views. That gives people the sense that there's free thinking going on while all the time the presuppositions of the system are being reinforced by the limits put on the range of the debate. That is a perfect example of how, at least I see, the relationship between the Knight Commission and the NCAA. They are really not that far apart on some of the most important features of the business model. And then there is this lively debate on issues that really float around the edge, but have very little consequence and have had very little consequence, in large part because the people on the inside who are invested in preserving the status quo aren't going to make any changes that truly challenge the status quo. And the Knight Commission can use rhetoric in 2021 that claims to see that problem, but they aren't making recommendations that really get at the heart of the problem. And they are not speaking a language which acknowledges that the principle of amateurism, the principle of the student athlete, the principle of the collegiate model are complete frauds and that there's not going to be any meaningful change until we see those concepts as fraudulent 
concepts and that a business model built on those concepts is by definition corrupt and buttressing it up through all of these hoary exclamations and proclamations about the integrity of college sports and the integrity of higher education only divert attention from the real problem. And the second quote that I used in that blog post comes from the, the report itself, the Commission on College Basketball. And it was like a 55-page report, and I've talked about it at some length. I haven't done a standalone episode just on that report, and I intend to do that. I, I intend to do that with all of these reform reports, going back to the Carnegie report. And I've talked a lot about that and through the Knight Commission reports and then some others in between. And then the Commission on College Basketball and leading into what's going to be some, some kind of report from this constitutional committee. But one of the things that got very little attention in discussion about the report of the Commission on College Basketball was how it framed its values, how it framed its principles, because they talk about all these recommendations and transformative change. That's what Mark Emmert said in his press release announcing the formation of the commission is going to transformative changes. But the NCAA put this committee together, this commission together, and they defined the scope of its work. They defined its charge and they had control over the content. It was an NCAA commission. It was not an independent commission. But I think some of the people on that commission, I think notably Condoleezza Rice, struggled with some of the hypocrisy between making proposals that were going to result in reform, but then being tied back to principles that make that reform almost impossible. And buried in the middle of that report is this sentence. In assessing potential reforms, the commission accepted as its foundational principle the collegiate model of athletic competition. That's the framework. And this is right before they get into all of the specific recommendations that are going to result in this quote-unquote transformative change. But when you are making recommendations that are built around the collegiate model, and in this context, I believe Condoleezza Rice and her commission are talking about the collegiate model as a substitute for amateurism, not as a financial business model, the way that Miles Brand used it in his 2006 State of the Association speech. I'm talking about this as a substitute for amateurism. Building principles of change around a principle that almost makes it impossible for those changes to be put into practice. Even if at the theoretical level are things that the institu institution could do, running those recommendations through the collegiate model make them almost impossible from the outset. And in the context of the recommendations on the infractions and enforcement process, the problem is that this report defaults back to having the NCAA change on its own. So because this was an NCAA commission, because it was not truly independent, because the NCAA had absolute control on how those recommendations were implemented, there is no check on the system here. And we're defaulting back to the same corruption that gave rise to the commission's very existence. And we're back in the same mold. And What's interesting uh, now is that the Knight Commission is, it, within all these limitations that operate to, to bound the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics and the NCAA, and again, they're just nibbling around at the edges. And remember, the way that the NCAA incorporated the principle of institutional control into its 
thinking. And there's no question that this was done as a direct result of the work of the Knight Commission in 1991. And in 1995-96, and I've talked about this quite a bit, there was a fundamental overhaul in the governance structure of the NCAA and a one-school, one-vote system to a federated system, top-heavy with university presidents and university presidents from big-time powerful football and basketball schools, Power Five-type schools. And I've talked about how that plays out in practice in the, in the governance role and how it's really a sham and that big-time college football has run roughshod over the NCAA over the years. But in that transition, you had a restructuring of what is now the Board of Governors. It was then the, the executive committee, I think. And then you had the Division One Board of Directors. And those are the two most powerful boards. And with these changes in governance that were inspired by presidential responsibility and control for intercollegiate athletics. And this was going to be the magic bullet. Those bodies were set up in a way that created conflicts of interest of such profound proportions that they simply couldn't have succeeded from a system standpoint. Because the way this principle of presidential control over college athletics was incorporated into NCAA governance. You had on the Board of Governors, originally with 16 voting members, now with 21 voting members, because five quote-unquote independent members were brought in for, as a recommendation of the Commission on College Basketball. And the Knight Commission says that they've been recommending that forever and that the Commission on College Basketball ap actually adopted that recommendation through the Knight Commission. But the problem is that those five members were selected by NCAA insiders. You have the same issue. You have the same issue. And I'm going to get to the Knight Commission's response to that problem here in a second. But the way that was implemented, you have now 21 voting members on the Board of Governors. 12 of them also sit on the Division I Board of Directors. And on the Board of Division I Board of Directors, there are 24 members and 12 of them sit on the Board of Governors. Oh, you have this massive crossover representation that creates just a profound conflict of interest because one of the most important functions that the Division I Board of Directors should serve is to evaluate the performance of the NCAA president. And that president is Mark Amert. And he has just been a train wreck. And he's largely responsible for the situation the NCAA is in right now. But he still has people defending him. And I'll talk about that in other episodes. But the Division One Board of Directors is supposed to give input to the Board of Governors on Mark Emmert's job performance. And it's supposed to be independent. How can it be independent when you have 12 people sitting on both boards? And under the NCAA Constitution, under Article 4 of the NCAA Constitution, the, it is the NCAA Board of Governors who is solely responsible for hiring and firing the NCAA president. The NCAA president reports to nobody but the Board of Governors and the only built-in check on his job performance and whether he stays or goes is this quote-unquote oversight by the Division One Board of Directors. But when these 12 people are wearing their Division One Board of Directors hat, they're evaluating the decision that they made when they're wearing their hat as members of the Board of Governors. It's a, ridiculous on its face. But that is how this organization put into place the recommendations of the Knight Commission from 1991. And what the, ironically, what the Knight Commission is now saying in 2021 is that the very principle of presidential leadership and control that its entire existence was built around needs to basically be dismantled and we need to replace those presidents 
as a check against their corruption and their greed and their self-dealing and their refusal to accept their responsibilities for academic integrity. We need to just marginalize those people and put into place a system where we have truly independent outside members who are going to be free from all of these built-in conflicts. You just can't make this stuff up. I think when we look at this referral letter, I'm going to do this in the next episode, but I thought this foundation is really important and it touches on so many really big picture themes that expose, I think, the difficulty in making change from within. And the Knight Commission is from within, in my judgment. It is not an adequate check on the NCAA and they have worked together. And by and large, their fundamental construction of reality is the same. But in one of the press conferences that the Knight Commission held in connection with this scandal, this basketball scandal, and this was in late 2017, Arnie Duncan, who played basketball at Harvard, he actually was on the Harvard team that Duke, my, my team, played against my senior year. So we went up to Harvard, played them up there. and It was a great game. We won by a bucket, but they took us down to the wire and they had a really good team. But so Duncan was also the Secretary of Education under Obama. And so he has some really important things to say. And I, I think he has the interests of the athletes at heart. But he was talking then, and this was really prescient comment. He said, look, the NCAA is in a position right now where we're really looking its relevance, you know, and, and Bob Gates came out and said that in connection with this constitutional committee, it, the NCAA is in a position where it is fighting for its relevance. And I would say that the same is true for the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, because it is at a really important crossroads here because the values that it was premised upon really have been corrupted by some of the recommendations that are the bedrock of the commission's work. And now they're actually having to fight against that. And they're going to have to pivot in a way that's, that I think is going to require them to really rethink at a fundamental level what their governing principles are going to be and whether those principles are consistent with the Knight Foundation principles. I'm sure they've had those discussions, but can they be an effective advocacy group? They're like all nonprofits. They need to stay relevant. And when you look at a lot of the stuff that comes out from people on the Knight Commission or people working for the Knight Commission, there's an element of look at what we recommended back then. They're doing it now. It's There's some marketing. There's a marketing component to that. And all nonprofits have to do that. But I think the Knight Commission is struggling for relevance here. And the entire status quo college sports industry writ large is really struggling here because their relevance has been called into question because for the first time ever, the fundamental assumptions upon which the entire business model is based have been challenged in a way that can't be dismissed. It can't be dismissed by NCAA propaganda. The NCAA can ignore the United States Supreme Court, but they can't dismiss it. They can't say that they do not have a voice of credibility particularly given the unanimity. And I think the United States Supreme Court was sending a message, even though it was in this limited context. But in this new environment, you're looking at this organization that's having to really be pushed into the 21st century, in part because of some of the things that are happening outside. So it remains to be seen whether the Knight Commission is moving forward on its own or whether it's really being dragged in a different direction because of all of these external influences that are inconsistent with the basic values of the NCAA. And I would say the basic values underlying the 
origins of the Knight Commission. But with respect to Carol Cartwright, she comes from that environment. So what I would say about Carol Cartwright, and she has an amazing resume, and I'm sure she's a wonderful person. This is not a personal attack, but her frame of reference is so ill-suited to the role that she assumed as the supervisor of the Committee on Infractions in managing all of these basketball-related scandals and the infractions and enforcement process, particularly ill-suited because she has an obvious conflict of interest because of her role as an advocate on those issues with the Knight Commission. That's a clear cut, okay? Beyond that, she, I believe, has evinced a bias against the whole enterprise. And that dates back to the original work of the Knight Commission. And then the report that they issued in 2001, which I talked about a couple of episodes ago, was an open temper tantrum that really was a bad look for the Knight Commission, because I think they saw that their model really wasn't working. And you had this double down on this mentality that that goes back to the Carnegie Foundation about this academic purity and academic elitism and the existential threat to the integrity of the academy, all these things. That is baked into the way that Carol Cartwright sees the world, in my judgment as evidenced by her work and her comments and her associations and her decision-making. And I think that Carol Cartwright and people who see the world the way that she does, I think Lamar Alexander is a good example. He was the chair of the Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee and held hearings in 2020. And he is a Republican from Tennessee, and he was former president at the University of Tennessee. So he's a former university president. He expressed open hostility to name, image, and likeness compensation. And he cited the Knight Commission work because he was on that Knight Commission, the first Knight Commission. And then he even invoked the Carnegie Report. And his views are dated. And he's stuck in 1991. I think Carol Cartwright's stuck in 1991. And that thinking is so outdated and it has proven to be so profoundly wrong. And this whole model of presidential control and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics has just been a miserable failure. And in my episode four on presidents in charge, I really gave the presidents the benefit of the doubt and said, yeah, this was all well-intentioned. And that probably was true in 1991. And I'm not questioning Carol Cartwright's commitment to those principles. I just think invoking those principles now that they have failed really does an injustice to the people in the system who make the value in it possible. And that includes all the people that she's pointing the finger at in this infractions and enforcement process. So you're having it both ways there. You're, you're getting the benefit of these people and then you're throwing them under the bus for your public preening. And that profound hypocrisy is just not appropriate. It's just not appropriate. So I just thought it was really important to give that background, given the importance of the role that Carol Cartwright's played in this NC State infractions and enforcement process. And I've said many times in this podcast that it is really important to understand the way that people like Carol Cartwright or Lamar Alexander or Roger Wicker or Jerry Morant or Mark Emmert, we have to understand the way they see the world. And if we don't, Nothing will change. Nothing. So in the next episode, we're going to go into the substance of this referral letter and really take a good hard look at some of the things that are in that letter that really are troubling from a fairness standpoint. And it, it's, again, it's just a window into the way that 
a lot of these NCAA insiders see their role, and it is a role that is just chock full of self-righteous indignation at a system that they find to be corrupt in many ways. And this whole shoe and apparel company influence is really a primary pressure point for these people. And all the bias that Cartwright brought into this process and now has reinforced through the, the handling of this whole process. And now the process that's been imposed on this new system make it almost impossible for NC State to get a fair shake here. And we'll see. You know, we'll see what happens. But we'll get into that in the next episode. And I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.